Creative Nonfiction Podcast is sponsored by Hippocamp 2018. Now in its fourth year, Hippocamp is a three-day Pennsylvania writing conference that features 50-plus speakers, engaging sessions in four tracks, interactive all-conference panels, author and attendee readings, social activities, network opportunities, and optional intimate pre-conference workshops. The conference takes place in lovely Lancaster, PA, from August 24th through August 26th. Visit hippocampusmagazine.com and click the conference tab in the toolbar. And if you enter the keyword CNFPOD at checkout, you will receive a $50 discount. This offer is only good until August 10th or until all those tickets are sold. There are a limited number, so act now. Hippocampus 2018. Create, share, live. Hey there, CNFers. It's the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, the show where I speak to the best artists about telling true stories. Whether that's narrative journalists, documentary filmmakers, essay and memoir writers, or radio producers, I try to unpack their lives and their work, so you can apply those tools of mastery to your own work. I've been a fan of today's guest for quite some time. Today, for episode 108, I welcome Katie Baker to the show. She's a staff writer for The Ringer. Prior to that, she worked for Grantland.com, so there's a Bill Simmons continuity going on there. Her work often focuses on a singular subject, and she's one of those writers that when you see her byline, you know you're in for some fun. Naturally, I've linked to some of her work in the show notes. She's at Katie Bakes on Twitter. As Tom Petty used to say, don't bore us, get to the chorus. I hope you enjoy this conversation with the great Katie Bakes. On, uh, on some deadlines and so forth. So uh, I wonder how do you set up your days when you're in the throes of a writing project so you can yeah, accomplish what you're looking to get done? You know, I guess, first of all, I definitely, you know, people would let my, the, the people close to me would probably laugh to hear me discussing process because from the outside, it correctly looks like, um, you know, a lot of chaos going on, but I'd say, you know, in general, I, I just, uh, I just had a new story go up today about the Sacramento Kings and, um, it wasn't like a super intent, you know, it wasn't anything. I basically had worked on it since, um, you know, for less than a week, I went to on Thursday to their NBA draft party and, and went from there. So, Um, so I'd say kind of for something like that, you know, a lot of it is just, I like to do things where I can include reporting because I just, anytime you can just go somewhere and be on the scene and look at details and it can, it can never hurt. It can only help. And so it's, it was fun to, I just got back from maternity leave. So it was fun to do that again. And on a day like today, when that went up now, it's time to turn toward kind of the next batch of things. So there's, you know, I have kind of different ideas and various levels of activation and optimism. So I'm kind of trying to do some organization and, and figure out how to prioritize those. Do you generate most of your own story ideas or are you getting them from from other editors and colleagues? 
Um, I'd say it's a mix. I mean, I'm definitely um, expected to and do pitch occasionally and kind of try to keep kind of a regular appearance on the site, even when I'm working on something longer. So if that means working in, you know, maybe a shorter post here and there, but at the same time, um, they definitely direct a lot of ideas my way. You know, there, there's kind of two hubs in LA and New York, and I work remotely from, uh, from Northern California. So they're definitely having kind of creative discussions and planning meetings much more frequently than I am. So they often come out of those meetings with ideas and I'm always, I love getting ideas. I'm kind of, I love getting assignments and ideas. I would say coming up with ideas is probably one of, I find it to be one of my bigger challenges versus just being told what to write about and just, you know, digging into it. What do you find the the challenges of being or writing features and doing the kind of work you do remotely? I think probably the biggest one would just be losing, you know, writing is already kind of a solitary activity when you're actually, you know, putting the words down and, uh, you know, mentally taxing activity. And whenever I do kind of go to the LA office for a few days or something, I, I emerge just feeling so creatively energized and confident and excited. And then, you know, I get in my own head for a week at home and I'm just convinced that, you know, <laughs> everything's bad and <laughs> everyone's mad at me. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm playing it up a little bit more than it is, but, but that would be probably the biggest and maybe even my only concern, uh, you know, complaint I, or not complaint, but, um, you know, challenge. I think the other thing is that at the ringer in particular, we, they do so much kind of video and audio work all the time that is also taking place kind of at the, you know, at the, on the movie studio where the, or the TV studios in, in LA where the ringer is located. And it would be fun to, to be more of a part of that on a day-to-day basis, but th- that's the trade-off I make for not having to, you know, sit in LA traffic, I guess. <laughs> right. And that, I think a lot of people, and especially me, can relate to that, uh, you know, being being at home as your, your main hub. And you know, even today, personally, I just, it's like my mind has been in mud, like I just can't get anything going. So I was looking forward to speaking to you because this is my chance oftentimes throughout the week to have an interaction with with a peer and someone whose work I deeply admire. And sometimes I find that very, most of the time, almost all the time, I find that very energizing. And and you kind of alluded to it too, like getting getting home and it's just kind of, you can feel a bit lost and definitely lonely. And so how do you process that and cope with that so you're still able to get what you like done? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, I've definitely learned to just be able to recognize it. And so it doesn't consume, like, you know, when I first, you know, I used to work in finance and, um, I, in 2011, I made the, the full-time switch to writing full-time. And I just remember just thinking how crazy it was that I had gone from working, you know, at Goldman Sachs in my early twenties and, you know, being worked around the clock and that sort of thing to being a a writer and and yet it was so much more stressful I was feel you know I was having so much more anxiety we had just gone through the the big you know recession and crash and 
it was a really stressful time at work. And even that didn't really like match up to just the, the ongoing, you know, stress and anxiety that I felt early on. And, and I think I didn't know what it was at first, but when you're, the work is just so different. I went from a very, you know, it was still a, a, a people business, but it was much more quantitative. It was much more discreet in terms of numbers. Like here's the work you have when it's done, you're done on to the next thing. And instead of, you know, a blank page and a blinking cursor. So mm-hmm. um, I think the difference between then and now is that now I just kind of know that there's going to be those, those dark nights of the soul and um, those weird moments. And um, I'm much better at recognizing like, you know what, it's, I need to, I need to take I need to go to sleep right now. Um, even though I'm trying to finish something, it, it's going to be better for, for me to go to sleep for a few hours and then scramble to get it done. Mm. than it is for me to just try to slog through the night. So, um, or, you know, just in general, kind of when I look at my schedule, I can identify kind of how the work is going to like the, what the workflow is going to be like a little bit better um, and maybe that means knowing that on one you know day or one morning, like I'm kind of resigned to the fact that I probably won't get a lot of work done. So I'm not going to torture myself about it. And instead, I'll make that a productive day in other ways. So those are some of the things that I've just kind of learned to do to kind of snap myself out of those those moments. And I'm also making myself sound probably more doomsday than than I am. But but it but it really does get there really are those kind of crazy times when I just feel like I'm typing through molasses and, um, you know, everything I I've been working on the same sentence for like two hours. And I know that that sentence is going to get cut anyway, because I just know it's not at this point, it's not even good. So, you know, it's good to have a, to have perspective on the fact that that's normal and and that's going to pass. And that's a big, big moment for you in 2011 from, you know, Goldman Sachs being on that sort of career track. And then, of course, you've had you had you had some writing experience that you were doing on on the side uh, ever since you were a teenager. And so you always kind of had that muscle. What was what was the thought process as you were looking to make that that transition to full time sports journalism after being on a finance track? As you said, <clears throat> even going back to when I was probably, you know, probably in like middle school and around that age, like I, I, I always was a loved writing. Like even as a, a kid, I was always writing little books and poems and whatever. But as you said, I had that, you know, I had that kind of going all the time. And then, and I always loved sports and I was a big Knicks fan and high school and college, I wrote for the you know sports section of the school papers and all that sort of thing. So when I, um, went to Goldman Sachs. It was for a summer internship, and I, like, sadly had to turn down a summer internship at Time Inc. at Sports Illustrated. You know, for like, you know, college juniors, and I remember just crying over the decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was always in my mind. Definitely got very sucked into the world. Um, you know, graduated and went and uh, you know worked there for. I guess about six years and in 2008 kind of right when things were starting to um, take a turn for the worse. That's when I started, someone emailed me and was like, 
oh, there's this new blog system called Tumblr. Like, you're always writing me these really long emails all day. Like, you should start a Tumblr. Hmm. And that's kind of how it all started. From that point on, those next few years just involved me writing a lot more. I lived in New York City then, so I met a ton of writers. I happened to, geographically, I just happened to live, like, catty corner from this bar called Tom and Jerry's that was, like, a big congregating point for a lot of New York new media blog people. They were people whose work I'd been reading since I was in college and stuff. So it was really exciting for me to tap into that scene a little bit. And it just increasingly made me want to do something other than what I was doing. When did your when did your Tumblr blog start gaining uh, a certain amount of traction that validated that that enterprise and side hustle that you had? I had no concept of like how many people were reading or like page views or anything like that. Um, it was more about like, oh my gosh, Alex Balk, like he liked my post. And, mm-hmm. you know, to, to just see that, that writers who I admired myself and who were cool and who were, you know, kind of engaged in this really interesting, creative, weird, insidery scene. So that was kind of a, a big part of it. And just meeting a lot of those people, you know, IRL cemented that. But I'd say I started, I would have to go back and look. I mean, it was probably when I started kind of like writing for um, Deadspin and Gawker and doing some freelance work that, you know, I felt like I was starting to like, you know, this is something I can do and get paid for. And so that was probably like in I would say later, like it, 2010, maybe a little earlier, maybe like late 09 by then. So, at what point does Bill Simmons reach out to you and start to you know, essentially poach you from where you were to to go to Grantland? The Simmons history is kind of funny because when I was my first year after graduating from college, I had a friend who was still in college, um, and he called me and said, I'm coming to New York City. Bill Simmons is doing a book signing, I think at the Riverside Cafe down in the village. You know, let's what, what's come meet me, let's go out for dinner, and then let's go to the book signing. And this was his book. It would have been his first book, Now I Can Die in Peace. And we went, and the line wrapped all the way around the block like once or twice and we stood in line and it was great we caught up and got to the front of the line took a picture with him it's actually kind of funny because chuck klosterman i guess was like probably sitting with him and visiting him (laughs) while he was signing books so he's like in the background of the photo so it's just me and my friend brian and bill simmons and that was in probably like 2005 2006 and then you know i'd say five years later bill wrote his second book um, and he was doing a, you know, kind of put a you know, media tour for the book. And he did a Q and a on this website called media that at the time had recently launched and was, I think the first website to actually pay me to write. I remember they paid me, what was it? If I wrote, I think it was, if I wrote eight articles, they would pay me $500. Mm-hmm. So once I wrote like article number eight, I would get a $500 check. So that was my first, that was my first contract, you know, and I was still working at Goldman at the time. So probably the only person at Mediate that was covering sports in any way. So he noticed my writing then. And I think um, he reached out to the editor just to say like, why, 
how come she writes so infrequently? <laughs> and um, mm -hmm. he explained why, and I think it piqued his interest. And we ended up emailing then, and I told him, you know, I was a fan, and that was probably the first correspondence. And then over the course of the next like year, year and a half, when he was starting to kind of launch Grantland, and, or you know, or at least talk about Grantland at ESPN behind the scenes, um, he reached out and said, "This might be happening." You know, and at that point, it just it was kind of perfect timing to um, to leave and start something new. What did you learn from probably reading Bill's work, you know, for for years beforehand? And then as you worked for, you know, his his baby Grantland, like what did you learn essentially being sort of a, an employee of him? And how did your writing change and bloom from that? Yeah, so I guess first of all, from reading him, I mean, kind of same as anyone that came across him, you know, early on, just it was such a different kind of writing with such voice and just opinion. And it's hard now because there's so, it's so kind of baseline to, for someone to write that way. But it was to have like the the pop culture references and, and that sort of thing. Like I sound like a fuddy-duddy putting it that way, but um, <laughs> you know, that stuff was just fun and funny. And it, it was the kind of stuff you would find on like news groups, which I was definitely really into at the time. So, you know, I guess just kind of the importance of voice and um, was probably something that, you know, sticks out to me from that. And then in terms of working for him, I mean, he just, it's just incredible to me, like how much energy and motivation and like enthusiasm he has all day, every day, 24 seven. I, I mean, I, it just exhausts me to even think about what his day must be like. And yet, like at the same time, if I send him an, like, if, if you send him an email, he writes back and like within the hour and I just don't understand it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, so, and then, you know, just the way he really like wants to find and promote talent is something that, you know, I personally have obviously been part of. And um, he really, he enjoys kind of finding and, you know, people when they're young and kind of unknown. And um, I think he's done that both at Grayland and at The Ringer. And what did hard work as a writer start to manifest itself to you. And and I, I say that in a sense that it's some people equate it to just hours in the chair or word count or just interviews and everything setting up things. And I wonder how you, how maybe like witnessing hey, like how he went about his work and maybe some of your peers at this sort of high level of writing and journalism, like what did hard work start to look for you? And maybe how did that redefine itself? And that, so you were able to apply that kind of rigor to your own work. I guess this, this is sort of not answering your question, but setting up a little, it's just one thing that was important at, at Grantland. And that is definitely kind of always, you know, I always remind myself of the ringer is how much of it is based on, just people's weird random enthusiasms and um, about how it's they encouraged us to write like 10 articles about one thing if that one thing is the most important thing in the world to you and you can do some kind of obsessive deep dive you know so um, I think just I, finding those things and seeing the way other people kind of claimed them and owned them and 
cultivated them um, is something that sticks out to me. I mean, that's less about the actual like writing, but just a broader point. So, and then writing wise, I think it's just honestly just seeing how much work we have such a amazing editorial staff from our, you know, kind of bigger picture editors down to the copy editors and fact checkers that we extremely thankfully have and, um, and encourage seeing just the, how much work they do and how tirelessly they work is always motivation for me to, you know, try to envision just how much is on their plate and to, you know, try to, try to make working with them that much easier. Mm. And uh, something I've noticed with your work for a while is that a lot, a lot of the profiles you've done are the, uh, these very singularly obsessed uh, individuals, whether it's a Mike Keenan or Mike Breen, Alex Rodriguez, Annika Sorenstam, Ovechkin. So you get these super laser-focused people. um, And I wonder if that, like, what is the draw for you when profiling people of that nature? I always have kind of empathy for things like, I don't think people often think enough about what it really means for a professional athlete to have gotten to that point and just what their lives, you know, there's obviously always exceptions, but what their lives have have looked like and how distorted their lives have probably been, whether they're a superstar or just kind of a run of the mill player. So, um, and then the true superstars, obviously like people are all different, but it's interesting. I mean, someone like Annika Sorenstam, she can't even really, you know, she can't really even like explain her greatness, but you can kind of like circle your way to approaching it. Um, but you're never going to like, she, how, cause how could she like, it's just, it's her life and it's like who she is, you know? And, but, but then I, I love anyone that's just like Mike Breen is just so passionate and his love for listening to the radio kind of launched him into now the voice of the NBA and, but at every step of the way, he was just like a broadcasting nerd. And so mm-hmm. kind of stripping back the layers of who he is today. And it's not like he's changed much. I mean, he's still the same incredible, kind, smart, funny guy, but, um, but stripping it back and, 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 you know, talking about that guy when he was a kid and, you know, in New York, um, is always, is always fun to do, you know, when the conversation, you know, not every subject is going to is going to sit through that or is going to want to but but when you can have a subject like him or um or someone like Ovechkin who you know I've never sat down with one on one but there's just such a, ri- a rich tapestry of of threads to pull when it comes to him and and doing research like that is always fun for me what I, what I love about those the people of that nature and um and I've I had this conversation with um uh, on the podcast about uh, about baseball coach, he's written a couple books that I think apply to the arts as well as hitting. And he was always saying this kind of goes back to the rigor question I was talking about earlier. And it was he was like, "All right, you've gotten to this point, and you're you know you're pretty good. Um, you think you're working hard, and then you take a step up in class, and then you realize you really haven't been working hard at all, and that levels levels you up. and And so that's what 
what I love reading about, you know, a lot of these profiles you do, you realize that even uh, Rodriguez, who was a prodigy, and then you realize the degree of work that he was doing to maintain it, take the PEDs out of it. He still has to work his ass off. It, yeah. It's, uh, you, you get a sense yeah, and, of, and seeing how he, how that turns into him being like, you know, calling his broadcasting partners every night and asking them, for feedback and they're like go away <laughs> go yeah. go call j-lo but that's it's <laughs> the same kind of obsessiveness i mean um the leveling up thing is interesting because i will say one thing i i love about reporting and about you know being going and being on scene is like you really do just see how how dogged and um how good at their jobs like some of the beat reporters are or the national, you know, NBA reporters or whoever it is. And just, it's kind of crazy that when you see kind of how hard they're working and how they're constantly doing something and how they're always looking for an angle. And it's a, it's a tough environment. Um, and that, and that some people get super competitive about it. And, you know, there's definitely moments where those things play in, but, um, my, my mandate at, at those events is always so different than, you know, someone who's in those positions that there's not a lot of overlap, but at the same time, it is it's kind of inspiring and motivating to, to watch, you know, the real pros kind of operate. Yeah. What, what kind of, do you have any specific takeaways that come to mind or where you see that degree of hustle and then how you can apply that to some of your work that kind of comes after the headlines hit? Yeah. So one, one thing I learned relatively early on, just kind of by, by, observing is I would just notice that a lot of times some of some reporters would would wait in the locker room for so long and you know locker room reporting is 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 its whole own topic but that's how it is right now and it's it's awkward you know it's inherently awkward to be in someone else's space and um you know I always just feel really dorky kind of standing in the middle of a locker room while Mm -hmm you know, kind of like not trying try not to make eye contact with anyone, but also trying to look like I'm working. But also some of that work just involves kind of standing around. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I just noticed that that people would just linger and linger and stay and the room would be empty and they would stay. And um, I never really understood what they were doing. And then I kind of just started hanging around and kind of realized that, I guess, you know, the way the rules are, it's like every athlete has to technically be present, um, at some point, but what some people do is they, they shower for, you know, an hour and a half and then kind of sneak out. And, but just a lot of times you could really catch people. And a lot of times it was kind of major people, um, just by waiting around, you could catch an interaction where the owner came at, comes in and talks to the player and, um, you're kind of standing right there. So that was definitely like one tangible thing that I saw and that now I kind of try to do if I'm not on any sort of like tight deadline which I'm usually not um is just kind of hang around and you have to you know or I at least have to go against all my instincts of being done and 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 not and not feeling awkward but it often can yield some cool stuff and um you know and then other stuff just like being at the Olympics was probably a big one um Mm. just seeing I mean people just are working their asses off 24 hours a day and then there's the athletes (laughs) you know and it's just seeing people like bonnie ford you know how she takes an event and turns it into 
a like a beautiful column and um just the the way she w- without even necessarily needing some sort of special access i mean a lot of times it's just her in in the media scrum just you know asking a thoughtful question and so those are those are probably environments where i've kind of started to you know learn from the from the real pros and working remotely how how have you honed your capacity to do a reported piece, but over the phone. <laughs> yeah, I've just kind of had to. I mean, a lot of times it, it, it that that's what they offer anyway. It's not ideal. I think what I've started to try to do, and this goes for in person too, but just generally is to do so much prep work and read so many interviews that whoever I'm talking to has already done that I'm not wasting the first seven minutes of a 10 minute conversation on, you know, cause I mean, the worst thing that happens is when someone tells some great story and you're like, Oh, like, this is great. This is going to be my lead. Um, and then, you know, then you go to do your kind of research a few days later when you're writing the piece and you realize that it's kind of their token story that they've already told to other people. So getting that out of the way first can at least, make the phone conversations like more targeted um, or, you know, at least trying to find like extra details that I can't find in a Google search. Um, But it's tough. I mean, one of the biggest positive changes was just this little, I bought like a better recorder and then I bought this earpiece that just goes in your ear so I can talk on my cell phone and it records my cell phone just through the earpiece. Like it doesn't even plug into my phone. It plugs into the recorder and so that thing has like changed everything because I can go sit on a park bench and do the interview and, you know, or I can be driving and, you know, obviously I'm doing it safely, but I can, you know, I can basically like pull over, you know, start talking and then record everything. So that's kind of made it better. So I'm not just like sitting around all the time, wait, you know, waiting by the phone. Wow. And what is the name of that device? <laughs> Yeah, so I can see. Okay, so I used to use this thing that was this pen. It was so awesome. It was called, I think, like the Live Scribe Echo Pen or something like that. And it was this pen, and inside the pen was the microphone. And then you had special paper, and as you wrote notes, it connected the notes to whatever audio was going on at the moment. So later on, you could just click on the notes with the pen, and it would start you know, you write down, you know, talks about his childhood and it would start at the point where they were talking about their childhood. And I love that thing so much. And because it was a pen and I wasn't like using it in a sneaky undercover way, but I think people would kind of forget that, you know, it wasn't like a giant recorder right in their face, Mm -hmm. but then they made all these like terrible updates to it and made it, turned it into like a Wi-Fi thing. And so I was really upset, but now I have kind of a pretty good setup where, okay, this, this earphone is called Olympus TP8 telephone pickup microphone. It's like $15 on Amazon. So I use that. I record things. I often send them. There's a transcribing website called, I guess, Temi, T-E-M-I. And it's just like a like a robot and you send the files. Um, and so the transcriptions are super rough. And if the sound quality is not good, like you can pretty much forget it. But I just send it to that. And then what, and then it comes back with a digital, you know, website and it's kind of the same thing where you can click on the words and it goes exactly to that part of the audio. So you can kind of get like the rough outline of what the conversation was. 
And then when you need the exact quotes, or you need to listen back to that exact moment. It's easy. So that's kind of been my new process that's been working really well in just trying to, you know, it lets you highlight quotes and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, just I, I, I downloaded um, Scrivener once because mm-hmm. I've heard such good things about it and I've, I've still never used it. And I like want, I want to like be that person that's organized and uses it. And um, I don't know if I ever can be, but I think I still have it on my computer somewhere. I said earlier, you said that you you have a, you know, usually some mixture of short and long stories going to keep, you know, the shorter pieces to keep you present on the website, but the longer ones that are kind of simmering. And I'd love to dig into your sort of how you keep, um, maybe like a, a how you keep that stuff straight and maybe where you you know you said like coming up with ideas is a, you know, something you kind of struggle with so maybe do you have a like a, an idea file and something that you revisit and hone and you know so that way you always have sort of a constant churn of stuff you're working on yeah i'd say like you know especially when i came back from maternity leave i kind of you know had kind of a, a big fresh group of ideas and stories and then there's some that are just kind of you know the constant like white whales that you know will just never stop trying like I mean A-Rod the A-Rod story I wrote was actually kind of one of those I mean we I'd wanted to write about A-Rod for so long yeah I have a file um my editor Mallory Rubin who's a genius and is unbelievable and is one of the people I'm um, mostly talking about when I when I talk about just the the tirelessness of the editorial staff, but, you know, she's good about kind of drawing that stuff out of me. And especially when it comes to kind of the short term stuff of, you know, is there anything you want to do this week? And then the longer stuff, I mean, to me, I've kind of gotten to a place where I think it works to have a file of ideas. And then, you know, to sometimes you get to a point where you're done with a big idea piece, you're trying to figure out what's next. And you just have to kind of try to reach out to someone on every idea and see if anyone says yes. And, um, some, you know, so I've gotten a lot better at, at, you know, handling those rejections and, and realizing, I think it's a sales thing where they say, you know, you try to get 10, 10 no's a day or something like that. And if, if you're getting 10 no's a day, you're probably at least getting one yes a day or two yeses a week or whatever it is. But, so I try to think of like immediate, you know, inquiries and queries to potential subjects or to representatives in sort of a same that same style. You know, what did your your career in in finance teach you about the type of journalism you do? I guess to some extent, working outside of journalism before working in journalism generally um, can be just a useful thing in terms of you know, seeing the way the world works or the companies work or how, um, or how the, how the media is covering your company and, um, whether they're doing it well or poorly. Um, so, you know, I, I guess other beyond that, just probably I've always been a research minded person. So, I mean, I used to approach my work the same way as I do my writing when I would be, doing research for clients or or writing presentations. So, and, you know, even at my old job, I was often kind of the designated like proofreader and um, just because that was always something that um, 
was in my skill set. Do you have yeah three to five like favorite books or articles that you routinely reread as a way to remind yourself how a certain type of storytelling is done? I'm not someone who necessarily revisits the same. I mean, there's definitely things I've read again and again, but actually I might, it just popped into my head. One, one thing that I do read again and again, because it's my reminder of just the joy of what a simple, perfect blog post should be is um, I want to say Alex Hurd wrote for Slate years ago about how, and it was like the, it was pegged to the masters, which I think was coming up that weekend in golf. And he just wrote this post about how golf is the perfect sport to nap to. And it was just this short little essay. And I, I read it like every year when golf season begins again. And that to me was just the perfection of the internet and internet writing and, and just so influential to me kind of in the, you know, the mid two thousands. So I, I wouldn't normally like start my list with that, but since it was in my head um, and then, you know, in general writers that are, you know, my, I, I literally say to myself um, when I'm working on a piece, I think well, what would Brian Curtis do? Who's one of my colleagues at the ringer mm-hmm. um, whose work is just so good and so vibrant. And I love his level of kind of detachment yet engagement Um Jessica Pressler is another one who I feel that way about. I always try to, when I'm getting really stuck in the weeds on something, I try to take a step back and say, okay, if Jessica Pressler was writing about this, how would she be doing it? Um, And then, you know, kind of more broadly, I love, I've always loved kind of creative nonfiction writers. So um, Ian Frazier, John Jeremiah Sullivan, you know, I don't think I've ever read any of, David Foster Wallace's fiction, but I've read like all of his, his essays, his nonfiction essays. And so those are things just to remind myself of like that voice and about the fun of reading things when they're written well, um, because I often get very bogged down in just like feeling like I have to explain everything instead of just skipping, you know, moving the, moving things forward. So those are probably some influences on me. Yeah, that's that's outstanding. That's kind of uh, reassuring. I think I, I've been in that a similar boat where I, in anything I'm doing, I try to actually like I put on like the hat or the mask of someone I admire, just like you're mm-hmm. kind of saying, and be like, all right, how would maybe how would they work their way through this? And then it gets me past my own, like I, my own, like my own like just like shitty view of my own work and like yep. it allows it allows me to get something that is at least semi competent and readable in front of me. Yeah, no, I mean I I, I have um I don't know where it is now because I've moved offices, but I have this like painting of an iceberg that I try to keep near my desk because it's a reminder for me that you know, people just like see the tip of the iceberg, like they don't see what's under the water. Like they don't it's like the, the duck swimming, like they see the duck, they're not seeing your legs working furiously. So they don't care or they, and they don't know whether you've, you know, torn your hair out over something or whether you didn't care about it. They just are reading what's in front of them and maybe that'll come through or not. So I'm just always kind of reminding myself, like the reader's just reading this, like the reader doesn't have all these mental hangups that, that you have. And the reader hasn't seen all these drafts. The reader doesn't know that 
this sentence, embarrassingly enough, mm-hmm. given, given the sentence, you know, took you 45 minutes. So it is, it's good to reset that way sometimes to think, okay, what would a Brian Curtis thing would, would feel so light here and, and my work right now feels so heavy. So how can I make it lighter? A weakness I tend to have, especially with really long stuff, essays and even book length stuff is I have a tendency to be, uh, to to overwrite or to try to be too clever or too too funny and it's always something i have to rein back in and um i I wonder for you what might you struggle with in early drafts that you feel like all right all right katie baker i ring it back in like uh, you know and uh, what might some of those things be it's it's um unquestionably just doing too much research like using doing more research as a as a procrastination tool essentially mm-hmm. which makes me feel like I'm being so productive and it makes me feel like I'm connecting all these synapses and you know I start to become like a beautiful mind like oh I, I read a sentence here that reminds me of a sentence there and I can totally use that as a transition and like this is going to be so brilliant and and then it's like, okay, how many words do you have? Zero. <laughs> um, or, you know, and, and then I sit there for two more hours trying to, you know, reverse engineer that brilliant transition into the piece when it probably doesn't even need to be there in the beginning. So, so that's undoubtedly like, I mean, and I always know I'm doing it and sometimes it does yield some cool information that makes the piece better. And, and I know it's kind of just part of my process at this point. So I, I kind of let myself go through that phase, but it, I mean, that's always my, that's always my issue. (laughs) Hmm. So is it one of those things like, uh, sometimes I ask people like, when do they know they're done? And is it a deadline that tells you you're done or do you have a, do you finally have like a, a good clock to know? All right, finally I'm done with this piece. I mean, I, nine times out of 10, it's the deadline. Um, (laughs) but, but you know, other than that, it's, um, it's if I if I feel like I know if I feel like I kind of know like what the like kicker is and what the you know the last three sentences of the first section or last three paragraphs of the first section or something um, I'm feeling in a good place I often have a hard time getting there um, but yeah it, I, a lot of times it's just the deadline or it's just it's like I said earlier I've I've gotten a little bit better at kind of recognizing like all right, you know what, you reach that point where you just need to send this in and then you can and take a nap and then you're going to fix so many of these things in your next draft. So instead of trying to tinker with it endlessly at this point, which is not going to help, like you got to let it go. And um, I've gotten better at, at realizing I'm, I'm at that stage. Mm. What do other... Uh, writers, maybe uh, younger or aspiring, or even people your own age or older, uh, what do they come to you with for um, advice-wise or questions and asking for maybe a bit of, a bit of wisdom given your experience with Granlin and The Ringer? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it's always just how I, you know, got to the position, and my answer is you know, it's not really a traditional path, obviously, but I think it kind of speaks to just the fact that there's a lot out there to do and you can always kind of come back to writing. And I don't know, I I think the other advice I often give is 
I mean, since I've identified it at the at Grayland and the Ringer, I, I always tell them how how important it is is to, to cultivate your own enthusiasms because that'll come through in your work and um, it just always you can just always tell when someone really cares and knows their stuff and then you know how to break in how to be noticed um, which is kind of the eternal question in my case it it did kind of you know um, fit the advice of do good work and people will find it and um, that's obviously not always the case and I was lucky because I lived across the street from a certain bar in New York City and the year 2008, you know, and that was luck, but the, you know, work I did in the early days and the late nights, like that was the work part. So that's usually what they're asking. I mean, they are so much probably more like multimedia savvy than I am and have any hope to be. So there's so much more that's available to them and they can go in so many more directions. Whereas I feel like I, to some extent, um, and I, and I don't feel like I only can do this, but I've sort of identified the type of work that I'm probably the best at um, and um, limited it a little bit to that. But with that in mind, would love to branch out a little bit more. Yeah. And what is the work that you feel you're best at and what do you want to branch out and do more of? Just to piggyback on what you just said. I think I'm best at doing you know, long form work where I can take advantage of just like my eye for detail and um, my enthusiasm for like weird subjects or for just immersing myself in, in whatever culture it is I'm writing about. Um, and then I think I would love to just figure out, I, I'd love to have the, the mindset of knowing what would be a good podcast or knowing, you know, this would actually be a really good, you know, YouTube video or something, this idea versus a written piece and just trying to be more thoughtful about how to like present an idea to the world because there's so much stuff that my colleagues do that is so funny and so brilliant. And I'm like, I want to do that too. But um, it's just not my, my immediate instinct to think like a you know, podcast pr producer. You know, what excites you and, and drives you still? And then to, you know, what, what about the work keeps bringing you back to the computer again and again? Um, it's so funny because like, if you asked me this yesterday <laughs> when I was finishing up a deadline and I was so crazed and I was so uncertain of this piece I just wrote about the Sacramento Kings. And I just, I felt like I, I wished I had, you know, one more day or one more week and it, I could make it so much better if I, if, if I could only do this or if I, um, anyway, and then today the piece is up and, um, you know, for the most part, people seem to like it. And um, some people have even remarked on the fact that they can tell I put a lot of work into it, which is a really nice thing to tell a writer, um, at least in this case. I mean, maybe some people wouldn't want to hear that. But so now I'm like, oh, well, it's great. You know, I learned about this. You know, I talked to people and I went to a fun place and I love my job. And yesterday I would have been like. I don't know how much longer I can do this. <laughs> I have no confidence. Um, so, you know, there's that roller coaster. But um, I think in general, I just, when I take a step back and think about some of the places I've been able to go and people I've been able to talk to and um, and just seeing my own personal confidence levels in my reporting and 
kind of, I'm not naturally someone that likes to call someone on the phone unprovoked. And um, it's even part of what I didn't like about my old job. And yet here I am. Um, But I've started to just realize like the way it can pay off, like to just make those phone calls. And yeah, sometimes people are going to say no, or you're going to say something stupid in a, in a scrum and people will laugh and all those things have happened to me. But I also just like when I, I can actually like see myself from the outside sometimes and I'm like, wow, you just like kind of went up to that person and asked that, or you just asked this question, or you just found this person's high school coach on the phone that you know no one else has. And, and they told a funny story. So those are kind of the little moments that are, um, you know, the probably the dopamine triggers <laughs> mm-hmm. that keep me coming back. But um, and just also always knowing that ever since I was a kid, like I love to write. So even when it doesn't feel that way, I just know that if I weren't doing it, I'd be doing it, you know. Right. Well, Katie, thank, thank you so much for carving out the time to do this. And thank you for for your work. And um, I, I ask you just one final thing uh, where if people are not already familiar with you and your work, uh, where can they find out more about you uh, on the on the Internet and uh, get more familiar with you and your work? Sure. Um, I You can find my work as well as the work of my extremely brilliant colleagues at TheRinger.com. Um, and I'm also on Twitter at Katie Bakes. And, yeah, if you're a sports fan, TV fan, tech, politics, um, you know, really strange esoteric discussions combining those things, then The Ringer is, is your spot. So. That's where that's where I, um, pretty much all my work is. Fantastic. Well, again, Katie, thanks thanks so much for the time and uh, and uh, thanks for the work. And maybe we'll get to do this again uh, sometime in the future. Yeah. Thanks so much. This was fun. Awesome. Thanks so much, Katie. Hey, if you had enjoyed the show, let me know. I'm at Brendan O'Mara and at CNF Pod on Twitter. You can also email me with questions or concerns. I'd ask that if you like this episode and others, that you kindly subscribe to the podcast wherever you get them and share it across your social platforms. You're the social network. I algorithm you. Also, please consider leaving an honest rating or review on Apple Podcasts. They go a long way. Head over to brendanomara.com for show notes and to subscribe to my monthly reading list newsletter. Once a month, no spam. Can't beat it. Thanks for listening, CNFers. Goodbye.